If you have your copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 as we read together. And let me just encourage you as we're standing, as we read God's word, to let the Lord's uh, word just wash over you as we read it. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in, the, in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that, God, we would hear from you what we need to hear from you today, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that, Lord, where there is clarity that needs to come into the life of someone here about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the rescue mission that you went on to, to seek and to save the lost, Lord, I pray that you'd bring clarity to them. I pray for your church, that, God, we would hear today, see and understand our role, our part in this mission that you're on to save the lost. And so, Father, we ask your blessing on this time. Father, I pray that your spirit would move and in the way that, that you do, where you take your word and you apply it to every heart. God, we ask for your spirit to move now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, my wife and I, you may be seated, <laughs> my wife and I moved to the, the Northwest 21 years ago. Uh, this August, our ministry is celebrating 23 years as, as a ministry, and we are excited about what God has done, but we have spent our time here in the Northwest. Originally, uh, I was from Texas, and the Lord called me into doing full-time evangelism and discipleship, and we began to ask the Lord where he wanted us to be, and he led us to the Northwest. Now, I probably don't have to elaborate much to tell you there's a big difference between where I grew up in Texas and the Northwest. There's a very big cultural difference. But one of the things that I was really not expecting that I found when I got here that was very different is the difference about this coffee culture that is in the Northwest. Now, I got to tell you, I grew up uh, in, in Texas. We don't have the same kind of culture in that way. I went to... Uh, I went to Bible college. I went and did two, sem uh, two master's degrees at Southwestern Theological Seminary and did it all without a single cup of coffee. Uh, I liked the smell of it. I just didn't like the taste of coffee. And so one of the big things that was different when I got here was this whole culture of coffee. Not long after I'd been here, one of the student groups that I was working with, we needed to have a leadership meeting, and I decided to let them kind of tell us where we were going to meet. And of course, they picked, what do you think? 
a coffee shop. It was, a, it, was, it was Starbucks, in fact. We went to a coffee shop. And so as we got to the coffee shop, I kind of waited in the back, and, and I was kind of watching them approach the counter, and honestly in amazement, because it sounded like a foreign language to listen to them as they ordered their coffee. And it, when, it, when it was my time, as I approached the counter, I felt a little embarrassed, even childish, as I said, I'd like a hot chocolate. And as soon as I said that, the the eyes and the piercing that came from these college students that shot into me was very obvious. I was uh, not in line with the culture. And one of the young ladies looked at me and she said, Mike, she said, if you're going to stay in the Northwest and do ministry any length of time, you have to drink coffee. And I said, well, I don't like coffee. And she said, let us fix your hot chocolate. Honestly, I didn't know there was anything wrong with my hot chocolate, but they took my hot chocolate, they passed it back over, they asked for a shot of espresso, a little bit of peppermint, some whipped cream on top, and passed it back. That young lady handed me that cup and she said, try this. And I took a sip. And I have to confess that on that day, I was converted. <laughs> I became a coffee drinker, and I loved the taste of it. I, I mean, it, was like any, it wasn't like anything I had grown up uh, drinking in terms of coffee. And, and as I'd been here a little while, I was starting to get into this, this, this whole aspect of the coffee culture. And, and one of the things that I began to realize is that, that in the coffee shops, they actually create this whole ambiance for you up here in the Northwest. We, we don't have any mom and pop type coffee shops like that down in Texas, at least not at that time. And, and so, you know, they actually expect you to come in, do some reading, do some thinking, do some writing, maybe talk to a stranger that you don't even know. I mean, they just kind of had this whole ambiance that they're creating. So I was trying to get into the Portland Groove. I'd gone to this coffee shop. And, and as I was there, I got my coffee ordered successfully. That was a a good first step. And I sat down and I looked around the room and I was embarrassed again because I didn't bring anything to read. I didn't bring a journal. I had nothing with me and I was by myself. And I'm looking around just feeling like, man, you've still got a lot to learn about this whole coffee shop thing. And as I was sitting there pondering that, I glanced down at my cup. And lo and behold, at that time, this particular coffee place had reading material right there on your cup. And I thought, this is incredible. And I'm sitting there reading my cup and beginning to think. In fact, that moment was so significant that after all of these years, I still have the coffee jacket that was on that cup of coffee. And, and this is what it said. Who says you can't change the world? And I was sipping my coffee and thinking about this. This was a divine moment. God was starting to, in the way that he does, his Holy Spirit was beginning to impress some things on my heart. And before you think that's strange, if God can speak through a donkey, I figure he can speak through a cup of coffee. And I'm sitting here pondering this idea. Who says you can't change the world? Now, not that God was saying, Mike Thibodeau, you're going to be the one that's going to change everything. No, it was the fact that, that God was impressing on me, that he intended to use me the gifts, the calling that he had given me to have an impact, not only here in the Northwest, but in the various places that he would send me. Who says you can't change the world? I continued to sip my coffee and continue to read. This was the next question. Ever wonder how big a footprint your unique lifestyle leaves on the planet? Now, I had been in the Northwest long enough to know they weren't talking about a Jesus lifestyle. But I began to ponder that idea 
of, of the way that Christ has called us as his followers to live and to move and to function in this world. And God was beginning to remind me, not, not only was he wanting to use my life, but he intends to use his church. He intends to use those who have come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He has a divine purpose for their life and a way he wants to use them that will leave an impact on this planet. Ever wonder how big a footprint your unique lifestyle will leave? I'm a very visual person. As I continued to reflect upon this idea, sitting in that coffee shop, this was the image that came to mind. And I drove home that morning thinking about what kind of footprint is God going to leave on this planet through my life? How was I going to be used by him? And this, morning, this evening, as we, we think about this, I believe God wants to challenge us. I believe he wants to challenge each one of us to think about walking in the footprints of our Savior. To think about how we're going to be used by him to have an impact. And if, and if you will, what kind of footprint will you leave when your life is completed on this planet? And I believe that the best way for us to do that is to examine the life of Christ. To look at the, the very lifestyle that he lived. To look at the footprint that he left on this planet. We see in Matthew chapter 9 several things that are, that are going on in this text. But one of the things that we're going to see is the footprints, the characteristic of Jesus' life as he lived, and what we need to be imitating and following. And as we move through this, really the focus of this message is intended to encourage you and to challenge you to understand that from a biblical perspective, evangelism was never intended by the heart of God to be a program at the church, but a way that every single child of God is used as they're scattered out into the various places that they move on a daily basis. And we're going to see in this passage tonight three images that remind us of the footprints of Jesus. And so here's the big idea that I want you to think about tonight. If we're to walk in the footprints of Jesus and to do evangelism as a way of life, we must be going and telling, we must be seeing and caring, and we must be rejoicing and praying. Look with me again at verse 35. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, one observation that can be made about footprints is that they're only left by people who are moving. Now, think about that for a moment. You really don't leave a footprint unless you're moving, unless you're going. And that's what we see in this text. Go, go. Jesus was going. Now, what's interesting, we've all been there, right? We've, we've come to a stoplight and the light turns green. And there's cars in front of you and cars behind you, but it's like the person in front of you forgot why they got in the vehicle that day. They're not moving. The lights turn green. It's universal. It's go. It's, you know, you're thinking to yourself, it's the one on the right, the pedal on the right. Let's go. But they're not moving. They're distracted. They've, they've lost track of, of where, what's going on around them. And so being the courteous, polite Christian that you are, rather than just leaning on your horn, you give just a little courtesy honk, right? Just honk, honk, just, hey, wake up, the light's green, go! Jesus was going. His mission strategy was not to wait, 
Not to wait for people to come and see, but to actually go and tell. It is his mission strategy. In fact, the very aspect of the incarnation of God coming to earth emphasizes the heart of God to actually go to the lost. That was his strategy. And it wasn't an aimless wondering. He was very intentional. He was very purposeful. Jesus loved to hang around lost people. Have you ever noticed that as you read through the New Testament? He loved to spend time with lost people. In fact, earlier in this chapter, in in Matthew 9, verse 9, it says we, we find out that Jesus is reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners, friends of Levi. And he's eating with tax collectors, those who were hated by the Jews, with sinners, those who were, who were outcast of the Jewish society because they weren't fulfilling meticulously the, the uh, tradition of the elders, the added aspects of the law. And Jesus is eating with these tax collectors and sinners all around you in your neighborhood, your job or school, around various areas of interest, whether it's your kid's soccer game or baseball game or various hobbies that you have. There are people all around you who do not know the good news about Jesus Christ. In the marketplace every day, you encounter people that do not know about Jesus Christ. Do you know their names? Do you take an interest in them? Do you see them? In community events that happen in Longview, on social media, there are people all around us that do not know the good news of Jesus Christ. But one of the things I love about Jesus is he was never distracted He was never distracted from his purpose. He was always going and always telling. In fact, on one occasion, Jesus had had success in a particular village where he was in, and he said to his disciples in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. Listen to this, for this is what I came for. Jesus said in John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 17, 4, we see that Jesus glorified God by finishing the work that God had called him to do. Our goal should never be to remain comfortable and maintain, but to go and to tell. And Jesus never got distracted from that. Do you ever get distracted? I do tend to get distracted. I remember headed to a, heading to a revival, and uh, I came to a, a, a light, and I was sitting there talking with my wife. This was pre-kids, and so I was kind of flirting with her a little bit, and she finally looked up at me and very graciously said, Mike, what are you waiting on? And I got a little sarcastic. I said, well, I'm waiting for the light to change. And she responded back again very graciously. She said, Mike, that's a blinking red light. It's not ever going to change. <laughs> Now, I don't know about you, but I can get distracted. Jesus never got distracted. He had to go. He was compelled to go. But why was he so focused on going? In Matthew 9, we see the answer to it. Jesus says, it is not those who are are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. As those accusations came, why are you gathering with tax collectors and sinners? It's as if Jesus is firing back, why are you not eating with tax collectors and sinners? They're the ones that need the very thing that Jesus came and was offering. During Jesus' visit with a tax collector named Zacchaeus, 
He spoke even more specifically about his mission. In Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. From heaven to earth, from city to city, from person to person, Jesus was going to seek and to save the lost. He was going and telling because there were people who needed to be saved. They were lost. They needed to be found. Can I tell you that there is something worse than being lost? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There is something worse than being lost. You know what's worse than being lost? Can you imagine being up on Mount Hood or one of the other mountains around and a storm comes in and you get stranded? You know what's worse than being lost? Having no one that comes looking for you. Think back to when, when you came to know Christ. Think back to that time before you made that profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Someone was used by God to bring the good news to you. Somebody was following the example of Jesus and joining in his mission and brought the good news to you. And this morning, I want you to, or this evening, I want you to think about that question. Are you going to join with Jesus and, and participate with him to take that good news to someone else? Every lost person needs someone who will have the courage and the compassion to go and to look for them. And Jesus loved this lost world so much that he would not stop going to find the lost. In this passage, the, the main verb that we see in this, in this passage, this aspect of going, is modified by, by three other words. And the first is this. What did this going look like? The first word is teaching. Jesus was teaching. He was giving instruction. That Greek word means to teach. It's a prolonged causative in terms of the form of the Greek, which just basically emphasizes the aspect that there's a learner who a teacher is instructing. See, evangelism is about someone who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ teaching someone who doesn't know and needs to know. And it's really that simple. I really hope that, that maybe tonight I can bring back an idea into your mind that evangelism is really about someone being someone else's teacher about the greatest news that could ever be taught to someone. The news about Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. Do you recall a time in school where you had, a, you had something you were trying to learn that was difficult? And you had a teacher who was really a great teacher. And that person was patient with you. That person took extra time with you, extra effort with you, because they came alongside to help you learn. That's what we see Jesus doing. He is teaching. The second word that we see that describes this going is the word proclaiming, to proclaim. This, this word means to, to publicly cry out, to be a herald. Now, we don't use that word herald very often anymore, but back in the time before social media, before you could send out a text message or an email, and before we had media and all of these kinds of things, especially in a monarch, when a king was about to make an announcement, he would send out a herald. He would send out one who would go from place to place, village to village, and make the public announcement. And as that proclamation was made, people would hear it, they would understand the news, and they would continue to spread the message. This word encapsulates that imagery. They were proclaiming, Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. John the apostle tells us that Jesus, who comes from above, is above all. 
And it goes on to tell us that what he had seen and heard, of that he testifies. Jesus was sharing about what he knew firsthand. And listen, that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, when they were told to be silent, what what did the apostles say? We cannot stop talking about what we've seen and what we've heard. Proclaiming. When Jesus began his public ministry, he opened the scroll of Isaiah, the gospel of Luke chapter 4, 18, records this. Listen to what Jesus said about his mission. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. This is what he came for. Now notice the third descriptive word there is healing. This Greek word is also a very interesting word because it means to serve, care for, then heal, restore, and cure. I want you to think about that. Think about it in light of of evangelism. To serve, to care for, so that there can be healing and restoration and a cure. Folks, that is exactly what the gospel does. It is exactly the good news of what Jesus came to do to deal with our sin problem and bring us back into restoration with God. Go and tell. We need to be teaching. We need to be proclaiming. We need in that spirit of that word of of healing to be serving and caring for people in order that we can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that they would come to put faith in him. Go. That's the mission strategy of Jesus, to go and tell. Now, why is it so important for us to take a moment to see that whole aspect of Jesus in this this first point? And it's this, because Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. You and I are to participate in that mission. We're to go as Jesus was going. We're to be teaching and proclaiming, and we're to be a part of seeing spiritual healing take place in the lives of those that are lost. Our mission is like his mission, to go and to tell. But sometimes it seems like maybe as Christians, it's like we're at that spiritual green light. It's green, God said go, but we're not moving. Maybe we've gotten distracted. Maybe we've forgotten about what our main mission really is. To glorify the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And maybe as we begin, as we get into this word tonight, the Holy Spirit's starting to give that little courtesy honk on the horn to say, go, go. Are you sitting at God's green light? Is the Holy Spirit prompting you and reminding you to go? If we're to walk in the footprints of Jesus and do evangelism as a way of life, we need to be going and telling, but we also need to be seeing And caring, look at verse 36. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Notice that when Jesus, it says he he saw them. Again, we have kind of the working of a verb and a description of it. He 
He was seeing the multitude and he felt compassion. That, that felt compassion is the main verb there in that phrase. That word compassion is a word that means a gut reaction. It was, a, it was a way that they described what was felt deep within what they called the bowels. Today we might say we felt it in our heart. Down in Texas, we say we felt it in our gut. <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of, and that's the idea that's in this, is that when Jesus saw them, he felt something. You know, I want you to pause. I want, I, want to, I want you to think about this. When you see the lost around you, what do you feel? What do you feel? You know, if I get honest, it's easy to be jaded. It's easy to be hard. It's easy to be uncaring. In fact, it can be very easy to feel disgusted, to feel angry, to feel frustrated. But none of those things are what our Lord feels as he sees the sinners around us. As he saw sinners in his day, he felt compassion. As you see the lost around you, what do you feel? The story is told of a little girl who kept talking to her mom, and she kept asking to go down to the, to the store. And it wasn't far from the home, and she wanted to just be a big girl and go and buy candy on her own and not have her mom walk her to the store. And she kept asking her mom to let her go to the store. The mother was reluctant because even though it was close, it wasn't, wasn't too far away. As, as you went down the road, there was a bend that went to the left, and there was a grove of trees, and the store was on the other side. And if she let her daughter go, she would eventually be out of sight it was, made the mother nervous. It made her worry. The little girl was persistent and kept asking. And finally, the mother decided she would let her little girl walk to the store. She had timed it, and she knew it should only take about 10 minutes. She told her little girl, go straight to the store, come straight back. The little girl took off going to the store. She was excited, kind of skipping along. The mother was watching, watching her watch, watching her as she went. She turned and was out of sight. The mother kept her eyes fixed on the clock and was waiting anxiously. 10 minutes went by and the little girl hadn't come back. 20 minutes went by and the mother was frustrated. She was worried. Finally, she saw the little girl coming down the street and she ran and met her in the street and she began to, to, to correct her and, and, and was speaking to her harshly. Why were, you, why were you late? Why didn't you come right back? And she said, Mommy, Mommy, please let me explain. And the mother wanted an explanation for her being late and so she listened. The little girl said, Mommy, as I was coming back, I saw my friend sitting alongside of the road, and her dolly was broken. And she began to back up a little bit because the mother felt like she had been a little harsh and had been a little quick. And so the mother looked at the little girl and said, so you stopped to help her fix her dolly? She said, no, Mommy, I stopped to help her cry. Compassion. When you see the lost around you, what do you feel? This idea of compassion is so important, and yet I realize I'm speaking to at least a percentage of people in this room that are men, and you're going, Mike, I just really didn't connect with the Dolly story. <laughs> I, I think you got my wife. I think she connected with that, but that just really, you know, it didn't quite connect with me, the whole Dolly thing. And I've thought about this a lot because something like compassion is something, men, that we need to understand, because it was the heart of God, it was the heart of Christ. He had compassion for those that he saw around him that were lost. 
So what does compassion look like? What's an image of compassion that would help you as men to understand biblical compassion? The image I thought of was this image. Many of you, if you've lived long enough, you'll remember this image from April 19th of 1995. It was the image that hit news outlets everywhere after the bombing, the Oklahoma City bombing. That is an image of compassion. See, biblical compassion is not weak, it's strong. Biblical compassion requires courage because compassion requires laying down our lives for others. To get involved in helping to meet the needs of their life, the real need, the most urgent need, that of knowing Christ Jesus. And we need godly men filled with godly courage and godly compassion who are willing to lay down their life and to walk in the same footprints as Jesus walked. Men, when you see the lost around you, what do you feel? And I hope this week you'll think about that image of that fireman cradling that child who was really to risk everything in order to help save the lives of others. What do you feel? Jesus was going from city to city, village to village, but he was motivated, and we see it in this text by his compassion. Notice verse 36, everywhere Jesus went, he saw people but he didn't just notice them. He really saw them. Jesus saw people, the text says, that were harassed, distressed, or bullied, or downcast. That word harassed is a Greek word that literally means to rent or to mangle as if by wild beast. That's a vivid image. Ripped and mangled as if by a wild beast. Jesus says, that's what I... That's what I see in these people that are far from me and do not know yet about the good news and the hope and the grace that I bring for them. They were bullied. This is another interesting Greek word that means to be downcast or thrown down. Some translations have helpless. The idea of it is, is men that are cast down, prostrate on the ground, wet rather from drunkenness, mental dejection, or mortal wounds. If you can imagine someone cowering because someone else is physically stronger or abusive, that's the imagery of this word. They were harassed, they were bullied. It was used here of the common people. It describes their spiritual condition. They were harassed and bewildered from entering the kingdom of heaven, laden with burdens by the Pharisees that it placed upon them that required this works of the law in order to get into the kingdom. And not only were they harassed and bullied by the religious leaders, but by a spiritual enemy that cared for them even less. Peter describes that enemy in 1 Peter, saying that Satan is like a roaring lion moving about seeking someone to devour. Friends, it's very easy for us to get jaded and have cold hearts when we see the mess that lost people make with their lives, that they make with other people's lives, that their messes make of our lives. It's so easy. So easy for us to get hard-hearted. In fact, I think it's one of the reasons why you get this picture of Jesus saying at the time of his return 
that people's love will have grown cold. Oh, church, may our love not grow cold. Jesus saw people that lacked spiritual care and guidance. He said they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were sheep that were unprotected from the predators. They were suffering from poor leaders. They were helpless, unable to rescue themselves. And Jesus saw them. Now let's go back to that that passage in Isaiah that was recorded by Luke and and look at what Jesus is saying. He said he came to preach the gospel to those who were poor, who were in spiritual poverty. Jesus asked the question, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer is nothing. There's a spiritual poverty This lost world cannot save themselves. They need the good news of Jesus Christ. They need a teacher to come alongside of them to help them to know what they do not know about Jesus Christ and his rescue mission. He said, I came to proclaim release to the captives, to those who are in spiritual captivity. The lost are held fast by by both the power of sin and the penalty of sin and the presence of sin in their life. Jesus said, I came to give recovery of sight to the blind. Those who are in spiritual blindness, the lost are deceived. They believed the lies of the enemy. They believed them over and over and over to the point that they believe it's true. He said, I came to set free those who are oppressed, weighed down with spiritual oppression, afflicted with guilt and shame, weighed down with cares and worries of this world. And if you're here this evening and you'd say, Mike, man, I feel like you're describing my life. I feel like you are are literally talking about the ways that I feel, the ways that I'm thinking. Then the good news for you is that Jesus came on a rescue mission and he loves you. He loves you. And he laid down his life to demonstrate that love for you. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you. And what we should see as we look at the lost around us is not only their present condition, but what they can be in Christ. The poor can be rich. The captive can be released. The blind can see. The oppressed can be free and have peace with Jesus. Jesus felt their pain. He felt compassion for them. He was caring for them. In this chapter, we see him demonstrating mercy and compassion for the paralytic, for Matthew and the other tax collectors, for a synagogue official whose whose daughter is is dying, and and a a woman who's hemorrhaging, two blind men and a demon-possessed man. All of that just in one single chapter here in Matthew chapter 9. He told them the good news. He touched them. He ministered to their needs and ultimately he would lay down his life on the cross for their sins and rise again back when i was in in high school there was a a christian artist named steve camp that had a song that he wrote that was one of the first times god just really moved this message into my heart and it was a song that he had written that poetically challenges christians to have compassion for those that they that we would all label as hard to love listen to the words of this chorus Do you feel their pain? Has it touched your life? Can you taste the salt in the tears they cry? Will you love them more than the hate that's been? Will you love them back? 
to life again. And I remember hearing that song, and I told you I'm very visual, and I'm wrestling as a high school boy going, Lord, how close do you have to be to someone to taste the salt and the tears they cry? And I just couldn't figure it out. And then the Holy Spirit began to prompt me, Mike, you taste the salt and the tears they cry when you're moved with compassion and the tears are flowing down your, your face, your cheeks. And I remember that moment. I will never forget that moment because as I stood before the Lord, I was like, Lord, I don't love like that. I don't feel like that. Lord, I want to learn how to love people the way you love people. And I stand before you not as a man who's gotten there, but as a man who's on a journey to get there. And every day I want to learn more and more how to love the lost the way my Savior loved the lost. Notice what Jesus said back earlier in verse 13 when these religious leaders were saying, why do you spend time with these sinners Jesus said something to them. He says, go learn what this means. Now, it doesn't have quite the same impact that it did when it rang in the ears of these Pharisees because this was a, an idiom in the Greek that rabbis used to instruct their students. It was a very, it was a, it was a phrase that would have gotten their attention as religious leaders who studied under rabbis. He says, go learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Jesus was quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 8. And if you go back to, the, to that in the Hebrew, the word is loyalty. I require loyalty. That word loyalty is a Hebrew word that's used to describe the covenant love of God. What was Jesus saying to these religious leaders? One commentator put it this way. The sacrificial system was a way to show the seriousness of the sin and the willingness of God to accept sinners into fellowship with himself. There would be no sacrificial system without God's mercy and grace towards sinners. In essence, you Pharisees who keep the sacrifices are the recipients of compassion from God, and yet you show no compassion to others. Go learn what this means. How much more so for us under the new covenant of Jesus Christ, having been the recipient of his grace and his mercy, that we would fail to show compassion to the lost around us. Go learn what this means. See, friends, where there is no compassion for people, there will be no effort made to tell them about Jesus. Maybe you feel like you're in a place where you're going, wow, Mike, as I think about evangelism, as I hear what you're sharing, I just kind of feel like I'm stuck. I kind of feel like maybe there was a time I used to talk to people more about Jesus, but I kind of feel like I'm just stuck. What do I need to do? What would God have me do so that I get off of this place where I'm at and really begin to engage with people that are lost again? Go learn what this means. Because, friends, when you begin to see people and have the compassion of God, it moves us because it is God's heartbeat to seek and to save the lost. Jesus felt compassion for you. He loved you. 
while you were a sinner. He loved you first without any need of or in response to some previous love that we were giving him. He loved you, and he loved you sacrificially. And when we really understand the love that God demonstrated on the cross, we can no longer look at people that are hard to love and say, the problem with me loving you is you. We can't say that anymore. Not if we understand the love that God demonstrated there. It brings us to this place that we have to look at our own life and say, Lord, help me to love more like you. See, if we're to walk in the footprints of Jesus, doing evangelism as a way of life, we need to be going and telling, seeing and caring. But this is the best part of this. Listen to what he says. We need to be rejoicing and praying. Look at verse 37. Quickly, he says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Folks, this is good news. This is a word of encouragement. Listen to what he said. Did you hear it? The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. And as we go and as we're telling people, that's a reminder for us that there will be those who put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's really encouraging to know. That's good news. I grew up in in West Texas. And where I grew up, cotton farming was a big deal. There were lots of cotton farmers. And if a cotton farmer got to the end of the season and he had a good harvest, man, he was happy with that. If he had a plentiful harvest, man, there was rejoicing. I mean, you could just tell when the cotton farmers had a big harvest when they came in for church on Sunday. I mean, it was just different. They were excited. They were upbeat because they were celebrating. Why? Because there are so many things that can ruin the harvest. So many different circumstances that could could thwart that work. A lot of times it's something as simple as, as weather conditions. You know, it's too hot or too cold too much rain, not enough rain, too many of the wrong kind of insects, not enough of the right kind of insects. So if you can get a plentiful harvest, man, that was something to celebrate. Jesus is reminding us the harvest is plentiful. There will be those who will humble themselves, put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is a harvest. And yet we're often discouraged by the difficulty of sharing the gospel because we look around and maybe we're not seeing the harvest. We're looking around and we're just, we feel like we're laboring, but we just go, to what end? We don't see the harvest. But can I submit to you that part of the challenge is that we have but roughly 80 years of life on this planet. And for more than 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been proclaimed with generation after generation after generation. And unless the Lord comes back in our lifetime, it's going to continue to be proclaimed generation to generation until the Lord comes back. And one day, we will stand and see a harvest of souls before the throne of God in a way that will bring amazement and clarity what Jesus is saying, the harvest is plentiful. As I look around the room, I see some of you who are wiser in age than others. 
Did you like how I said that? I tried to be careful how I said that. And when I see you, I see some people that probably remember a time in the United States of America that you might describe it as harvest time. Times when there were evangelists and other preachers in church-wide revivals that were preaching the gospel and many people were putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And some of you may remember those days and you may sit in a place now of going, where's the harvest? And like you, I've pondered that. And I was reading an, a sermon by an old preacher named John A. Broadus. Listen to what he said. Are you in a season of sowing or a season of reaping? There are seasons in the spiritual sphere, sowing seasons and reaping seasons, just as there are in farming. But if you expect that there will be just as much sowing and reaping at any one time as at any other, then you will certainly be disappointed. Christians in the church ought to be seeking to reap a harvest of spiritual good among those all around them all the while. But they will have seasons which are rather of sowing and other seasons which will be rather of reaping. And friends, if I could share with you what I, what I get, what my insight is right now, we're in a season of sowing. And you know what? Sowing seasons are hard seasons. Because harvest comes after the work of tilling the ground, planting the seed, doing the watering, doing all the work. Then comes harvest time. And so the question that God has been asking me and that I've been asking of God's people is are we ready to do the hard work that is required during the season of sowing? Even if it means that you work to sow and may never see the harvest with your own eyes. See, we may very well be in a season right now where we are sowing for what will be reaped by the next generation. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's a bummer. <laughs> Why don't we get to see the big harvest? Why don't we get to see the big, big drawing in? We're going to be doing all the work. Shouldn't we get to see it? And I love what, I love what Jesus reminds us of, of his kingdom reality. He says in John 4, you can read it later, the full text, 35 through 38, but he says this, he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Are you willing to do the hard work of sowing? And friends, I can, I, I can just tell you my perspective on this because I've been in nations traveling internationally as an evangelist where it's harvest time. In Rwanda, where I've spent many years, the past seven years, preaching the gospel across the nation of Rwanda, it's harvest time. Man, people are getting saved left and right. People are not just getting saved because an American evangelist is there. We trade African leaders, and they're going out and sharing the gospel, and people are getting saved. It's awesome. And I come back home, and I'm in the Northwest, where we're looking at a field that it's not only not plowed, it's got rocks all over it. And we got to get the rocks out, we got to get the plows moving, and we've got to cast seed. And it doesn't feel like harvest time. And I believe the Lord wants to encourage you. The sower and the reaper will celebrate 
rejoice together. Let's do our part because there's good news. There is a plentiful harvest. And don't ever lose sight that God has gone before us. We're not doing this alone. The Bible tells us that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then we get this glorious news from John 12, 32, where Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He goes on to say about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8, and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. We are never doing this alone. And that's really good news. But there is a word of reality The laborers are few. The laborers are few. That there are few that are committing themselves to bring in the harvest. That are willing to work. They're willing to leave comfort and reputation to risk friendships to go. There's fear of rejection and mockery. And there's countless other reasons that we might have. And so what does Jesus tell us to do? It's right here. Let's close with this. Look what he says. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That word beseech is not half-hearted. It is, it is a Greek word that means to beg with earnest desire. It's a deep longing that we are so longing to see the harvest. We're coming before the Lord and we're crying out to God. We're beseeching the Lord to send out laborers. Listen, how much I long for the salvation of men is evidenced by how much I pray for this sending out It's not only a prayer that we pray for others. As we begin to make this prayer, it's a prayer that we begin to pray for ourselves. Just like Isaiah, before the Lord, holy, high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. And the word of the Lord was spoken. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah. Then I said, here am I, send me. That's an earnest prayer. A from a deep longing of his heart to God, send me out as a laborer. Is that your prayer? Is that your heart cry to God? Send me out. We've seen tonight that we need to be going and telling. I pray that every stoplight you come to for the rest of the week, you keep thinking about the Holy Spirit honking on that horn saying, I want you to go. We need to be seeing and caring We need to have compassion for the lost as Jesus did. And we need to remember the good news. The harvest is plentiful. To rejoice in that and to pray, Lord, send me. Send others. As the worship team is coming, I want to lead us in prayer. And as you bow your heads tonight, as we move into the close of our service, as we'll be singing, as we will worship What has the Lord spoken to you tonight? Are you here tonight and you'd say, Mike, I've never trusted in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Man, when I hear you talk about the people that are lost, the people who are filled with guilt and shame, the people who are are harassed and they don't know where they're going to spend eternity and they're, they're aimless and they're wondering, that's me. I've never trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. If that's you, 
If that's you, if the Spirit of the living God is speaking to you tonight and you know you're seeing clearly that Jesus Christ died for you, rose again, then tonight will you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? To simply say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I am, but I believe you died for me and you rose again to give me life and I am trusting you. I surrender to you. You're Lord and I'll follow you. If that's your heart, will you make that confession tonight? If you're here tonight as we sing, as we move through the close of our service and you know you're a child of God, would you just make it your earnest prayer? Lord, send me. Lord, send the the Christians of this church, send the believers of churches across the Northwest, send us out as laborers. Almighty God, I pray in the name of Jesus that, Lord, you would send out. Lord, that word literally means to thrust out, to force out. It's as if you know our reluctance already. You know that we're hesitant to move. You know of our selfishness. You know of our hesitancies. You know of our insecurities. And so, Lord, we pray and we ask you, send us out. Move us, Lord. And, Father, I pray, send me. Use me. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight that has never trusted in Jesus, that, Lord, as they are Responding to your Holy Spirit, I pray that, Lord, if tonight is a night, Lord, that they would have the readiness to humble themselves and to say yes to Jesus. If they need to talk to someone, that they would go to a Christian friend or to the pastor or to me. But, God, I pray for salvation of the lost. Send us, Lord, right into the midst of harvest. And I pray, Lord, your blessing upon your people as they scatter out to do exactly what you've called them to do, to walk in your footprints. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mike, I so appreciate the encouragement. And I imagine if you're like me, you're sitting here and, and you're thinking about people you know. There's a good chance there's someone coming to your mind that you're like, I would love to see this person know the Lord. I'd love to have an opportunity to share Christ with this person. You know, that's maybe one of the, the first steps. We, we pray to the Lord of the harvest and recognizing the workers are few, but the workers are in this room right now. So I encourage you, take that person's image and just keep it in your mind. As you go through the week, ask the Lord for that opportunity to begin to share about Jesus with even just that one person to start. I'm so glad you're here tonight. I'm, I, I hope that you were encouraged. I hope that you were challenged. Uh, and I kind of like what he said, and I want to offer help. So if you heard like this message, you're like, I don't know where to start. Come grab someone. Go, grab Mike, grab myself, Stephen, Andrew, any of us would be willing to sit and talk with you and, and kind of walk you through where do you start in terms of sharing your faith. Now we are going to conclude our service. We're going, to, we're going to sing one more song together in just a minute. I'm going to pray for that in just a moment. We're also going to receive an offering. Now this is for those who call Valley their church home. There's never any pressure whatsoever to give. But if you do want to give, the process, the way it works, is at the end of every one of these rows, there's a black bucket, as well as, uh, I think, on this row right here along this side right here. And so after I pray, if you're the closest person to that bucket, would you just grab that bucket and pass it toward the center?
banner, and then there will be a few teenagers that come through and collect that. You can put your offering in there in any of those connection cards, the uh, Welcome to Valley, Prayer Request, or Put Me in Coach cards. Any of those cards you can put right there in those buckets, and we'll take them from there. All right? Would you stand with me? Let's stand together. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll leave here rejoicing and, and recognizing God's faithfulness. Lord, we do thank you. Thank you so much that you include us in this incredible mission. Thank you that Jesus died and rose again to save us. And thank you that he has given every single one of us that same purpose of sharing this story of Jesus' great love. And Lord, I pray, I pray for our family members who have yet to trust in Jesus. I pray for our friends and our neighbors, our classmates. Lord, you know the people we have in our mind, the images, those faces, those, those, those loved ones. Father, I pray that you would begin to work in their lives, preparing them to trust in you. And Lord, I pray you would give us not just the opportunity to talk about you, but you would give us the words. And I pray that you would rescue them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the dominion of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.